I'll be reading verses 8 through 17 in 1 Peter 3. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And you may be seated. So I've been working my way through the book of First Peter in uh, sermons. Um, most of the time when I preach here at Weavertown, today we are in the passage that was just uh, read, and um, it comes close to the end of a um, series of um, a, the entire section here from, as I see it, from First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down to chapter 3, verse um, 17, which is where I'm ending today. I think there's a very clear um, continuity that we see here in the, um, in the passage. And chapter 2, verse 11 especially, I think, sets up the, um, the stage for what we're dealing with or what we're talking about here, what Peter is giving teaching on, and that is how the world sees the church. There's an outside group of people that are looking in, and they are drawing conclusions about the church. They are drawing conclusions about God based on what they see. And um, that seems to be Peter's um, heart and the emphasis throughout this entire passage. <clears throat> Verse 12 of 2 Peter 2, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And he circles back to that idea toward the end of uh, the uh, section that we're studying here today. Let me just review a little bit um, the previous sermons. I talked about submission. Um, this entire section, I think, uh, sort of centers around that. And it has to do with our social interactions in relation to the world looking in. And um, we talked about our submission to government. 
and uh, we talked about our submission in the workplace. And that day there was uh, slavery, uh, which we talked about in Sunday school class today, but it uh, translates, I think, very well to our responsibility to working hard and doing a good job in our places of employment. And then, of course, we uh, noticed the section at the end of chapter 2 where it talks about how Christ submitted to the will of God as he went. And then in the last time I preached out of here, we looked at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3, where it talks about submission in the home or specifically in the marriage. And um, so, yeah, today um, we just, again, noticed that the general obligation for all of these roles can be summed up in one word, and that is the word submission. We submit to government. Masters or servants submit to their masters. There needs to be submission in a marriage. Husbands, likewise. Wives, likewise. In that same manner, or like Christ submitted, we submit in, in, in our relationships. And now Peter takes us to uh, yet another aspect of uh, relationship, and that is the relationship in a congregation. <clears throat> Notice, he says, submit... Oh, verse, verse 8, finally, and I, that word finally, I think, um, means that as he ends this section, or in addition to, or um, yet this one thing, or another thing that he's mentioning here, he says, all of you, be ye all of one mind. I've entitled the sermon, Submission in the Body of Believers. <clears throat> Submission in the Congregation. In the first section here, verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3, I think you can especially, um, by looking at the pronouns, it's very easy to see, I think, that, at least from my opinion, he's talking about... Um, working together from within. Um, he's talking to the, the, the congregation that he's writing to. He's talking to believers. And then he translate, transitions to teaching in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 3, where he talks about being criticized for doing what's right. And um, I know that the uh, word um, they, the pronoun they, is used frequently here. And it is possible that he's talking about being criticized by those who are not believers. And uh, I will allow that that is possible and very likely um, could be the case. But I think for myself, as I studied this and prepared, I think I find myself feeling just as much like that it's possible that he is talking about criticism that comes from within the group, not necessarily from without. And um, I think that's a challenge that all of us um, at different stages or times in our life uh, deal with. And I think I'm going to approach it from that aspect today. I have four things in relation to that and five things in relation to the first section. <clears throat> so first of all, submission in the congregation, I think um, it starts by our general attitude 
our general attitude. Finally, he says, to sum it all up, or the final words on this subject, all of you, he says, all of you be ye all. And that just means all. All means all, and that's all that all means, someone has said. It talks about everyone. We are all to have this mentality. We are all to have this attitude of submission. It's not just for one section of the congregation. It's not just for certain roles or responsibilities. He says, be ye all. And I think that is very important to notice. And there's a five-fold description that I see here in relation to verse 8. There's five things that he mentions here, and we're going to go through those uh, quickly. And there's more that could be said, but for the sake of time, we're going to keep it moving here. Five descriptions that he talks about in relation to our attitude here in verse 8. The first of all, he talks about being of one mind. Be like-minded, some translations will say. Be ye all of one mind. Like-mindedness. Now just think for a moment. Is that, is that possible? Is it possible in a congregation? Now I think um, it's probably been correctly said that whenever you have two people in a relationship, um, if two people agree on everything, at least one of them is not thinking. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you can think about that. But I think like-mindedness needs to be the goal. And I think also further, like-mindedness is more than just agreeing on things. Like-mindedness has much more to do with, with um, foundational things rather than agreeing on what we're actually talking about. Like-mindedness. If... If there is agreement in our thinking, that's called uniformity. And that's nice when that happens. I think that it's something that we should strive for. I think we should condition ourselves to, to get to that place. But I think the reality is that, like I said earlier, if two people agree on everything, it's possible that one or both of them are not thinking. So in a congregation like we have here, um, I have certain views about the Bible. I have certain views on eschatology, on end times, on the study of end times. I have views on the rapture and how that will take place, on the tribulation, the millennium, those sorts of words. I have views about the Holy Spirit. And I have views about doctrines in the congregation or in the church, out of the Bible, and how church should be done, and those sorts of things. And I think that's, that's okay. I think that's something that we should have. I think that should be part of, of, um, of how we do things. But I realize that some of you may not share those opinions, and... Uh, I guess just tongue-in-cheek here, I can say, well, that's good. I'd like to give you the grace to be wrong. But on the other hand, there is also a place where we need to seek to form and, and blend those views. And I think that's more what he's talking about than thinking exactly the same thing. 
For instance, in the early church, you don't get very far into the story in Acts until you see that there's disagreements and arguments and divisions, some of them fairly strong. And I, I think it's something that um, has been part of the, the story and the history of the church. And I would like to encourage us to not be overly undone by that. I think the study of church history often is studying how disagreements or how things uh, were done when people disagreed. So there were disagreements in the early church. They talked about things like how, uh, what the response should be to eating meat that was offered to idols or that was sacrificed in the heathen pagan worship services. They talked about things on how it should be done in relation to uh, keeping the Sabbath, which was the Jewish traditions. And um, there were other days and holidays, Jewish holidays, that were talked about in the, in the um, New Testament. We can see that early on in the, they were not even 20, 30 years in, they were talking about this. There was discussion in the early church about how to take care of widows and how that should be financed and that sort of thing. Paul and Barnabas argued about John Mark's role in their missionary journeys. And I think even prior to that, you can see the disciples arguing uh, as they followed Jesus. When, even when Jesus was right in their midst, physically, they were discussing and arguing about things. One of those, of course, was the selfish thing about who should be the leader and that sort of thing. And those are, those are things that are, I think, current, even all the way to, to our experience here at Weavertown, that you can make application. There's a bunch of disagreements in the New Testament. And that's because we are just regular human beings, and we think about things that are happening around us. The challenge, I think, is to become like-minded, to think the same way. And that is deeper than just agreeing to have foundational, to have a foundation from which we start on. And I think one of the best examples is in the New Testament itself, there's teaching on how a church should function. And Paul uses illustrations, especially in the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, he uses how a body functions. And we know the problems that come physically when a body starts to turn on other parts of the body. It creates a lot of problems, huge problems. And you could say the same thing for the other illustration where the illustration is given in the New Testament of that of a building in relation to um, a church. When part of the building falls down, when part of the building is in disrepair, it puts incredible stress on the rest of the building has a ability or the, the, the yeah, has, it, it can potentially destroy the entire building. <clears throat> and that's the illustration that, that Paul teaches. Jesus, in the upper room there in John 17, where he prayed, he said, Father, may, um, may they be one even as you and I are one that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Or I'm, I'm not quoting exactly, but it's something like that. It was a prayer of, of Jesus. It should be our prayer as well, that the foundation from which we operate is continually sharpened and, and strengthened. 
thinking together. And then there is uh, another aspect that we see here. He says, uh, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. And we've seen this um, in other parts and other places in the Bible and even in this own this, this um, context here that part of the reason that submission is necessary is because of that we're in this together. And the word compassion itself is interesting in that it's um, um, two words in the Greek and the translation to English has the prefix C-O-M or come, which means with or for. And in our more modern times, we think of, the, of when we say that somebody is passionate, we, we say that they feel deeply about something or they have a vision for something. And I think that's correct. But in the, in the Greek, and also in many of the English dictionaries, the f- one of the first definitions, if not the very first definition for the word passion, is suffering. We talk about Jesus' passion, or we talk about Passion Week, or the Passion of Christ, and that's talking about suffering of Christ. So, specifically, the word compassion means to suffer with, or to suffer for, suffer together, to feel the same thing. So it's interesting. He first of all says that we should seek to think the same things, be of one mind, and now he says that we should feel the same things. In other words, I can't be callous or numb to what others are feeling. I need to be willing to share the joys and sorrows. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. And it's It's easy for us to sometimes get that switched where we rejoice with those that weep and rejoice, weep with those that rejoice. And I I think it's something we need to guard against. Earlier, I talked about this as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. In the context of the teaching of the body functioning, it says that if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. We all suffer when one suffers. When one member is honored, we all are honored. And that's having compassion. Feeling the same things. And then the third thing, he says, love as brothers. Love like brethren. Now, that sort of gave me, uh, that made me sort of stop in my tracks because I have three older brothers. And um, being the youngest um, um, that's created sort of a dynamic for me because um, I think for in my particular case, I have, my three older brothers are all sort of opinionated. Maybe we all are. And we have, we have we, I love my brothers, don't get me wrong, but we have argued and probably debated and uh, disagreed and maybe fought. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but probably as much, or with the best of them. We, have, we, we, we still do, maybe when we get together, we find things to talk about and, and we sort through it. So, love like brothers. Um, it doesn't necessarily take me to some lofty um, place when I think about that. But, I, I, like I said, the love that I have for my brothers exceeds 
the feelings that we have when we are together. And the, the deeper trans, the deeper places that it takes me is that there's an incredible loyalty that you feel toward family members. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's especially true for brothers to brothers and sisters to sisters. I don't know for sure, but that the loyalty, that the family ties. So when, when it comes down to it, we might disagree on things, but there are things that we, that we will come to bat for each other. It's a loyalty that's present there. That's, that's, how it was. that's how it is in my case, and I think you can probably relate to that as well. Another, one of the other translations says that we should love one another like brothers should. I think that sort of helps. And I also take comfort in the fact that Peter wrote this. Peter, as we know, was a, had, a, had a brother named Andrew. Uh, Peter, I think, was very uh, bold and forward and spoke his mind and was, uh, his feelings were close to the surface. Andrew, on the other hand, is described in Scripture as also feeling deeply, but maybe more a behind-the-scenes kind of person. So the opposites you can see there going on. Andrew was a good brother to Peter. He was a loving brother. And he was the one that led Peter to Christ. So love one another like brothers should. And I think the Bible actually um, digs further into that in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 14, he says, By this we know that we have passed from death unto life when we love our brothers. Makes it pretty, fairly serious. The fourth thing that we see in this description is that we should be pitiful, the King James Version says. Most of the other translations will uh, use a different word, and I think it's probably maybe just a better translation of the Greek word, and that simply means humble. The word pitiful would describe something about being full of pity or being sensitive would be another word to, to use. It could be used. It's something that we should be great at. It's something that we should develop in our lives. When we see things going on in the lives of people around us, to stand back and do nothing is, it, it just shouldn't be part of our story. We should be doing something. We should be working for a better spot or a better um, solution. And I think along with that, I think there's also um, this opportunity or let me just say it this way. I think sometimes, maybe, maybe even specifically I'm talking about myself, but even, even um, as a congregation, I think sometimes we have a lot of people in and out here. We're in a place in Lancaster County, a spot here in our, yeah, in our history where there's a lot of people in and out. And sometimes we can sort of feel, get the feeling that mm, it's just you know, another person, another problem, another situation. And um, we can sort of become callous to that. And I think we need to guard ourselves from moving away from this beautiful Sweet spot of being tender-hearted, full of pity, humble, humble-mindedness. And um, I actually, yeah, I got ahead of myself just a little bit here. The fifth description here about being courteous, and this is the word that I wanted to say earlier, is mostly translated in other uh, translations as the word humble. Humbleness, humble-mindedness. 
And that means being willing to stoop to um, the lower places. And I appreciated what Josh shared this morning, just spot on. In other, in other, in a way, the primary way to serve is to, to, to stoop lower. I think sometimes in our Western culture, and probably just as a result of our human nature, we tend to think of, of um, sanctification in our lives sort of taking us to higher and higher levels where we're pulling off of the top shelves. Um, F.B. Meyer, a writer of long ago, says, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above another. The taller you go in Christian grace, the more easily you could take from the top shelves. I have now come, he says, to realize that God's gifts are on shelves one below the other. It's not a matter of growing taller. It's a matter of stooping lower. I like that. I'm really, really challenged by this, this particular aspect. Humble-mindedness. Being courteous. It's not so much about saying please and thank you, although that is very much a part of it. I think especially the aspect of gratitude and just good courtesy demonstrates humility. Are you a person that, is, that can readily thank people for what they do? Are you willing to ask and use the word please and that sort of thing? It, it communicates value and, and dignity to the person that you're talking to. I think all five of these together form sort of a beautiful description of the general attitude of the believer. And that, of course, is is love. <clears throat> so verse 8 talks about our attitude, and it gets a little harder now in verse 9, where he talks about our response in verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. That's a lot different than what I've been talking about so far. It sure seems like he's talking about fellow believers here, right? I think that's the continual aspect or the continual theme. He's writing to believers. Verse 8, especially. We can easily say, well, yeah, he's talking to believers, but then I don't think it's consistent for us to transition to something other than believers in verse 9 and following. There are times, of course, it, yeah, how do you treat the people that are giving you hassle? How do you treat the people that you have a disagreement with who feel something differently than you do? It's, it's the challenge. Not returning or, yeah, not returning evil for evil. And there are things that happen that are just wrong. They're not right. But on the contrary wise, blessing in those situations. Knowing, he says, that you were called to this. I think that is so sobering. We don't return evil for evil. We don't return railing for railing. Knowing that we're called to this. And the reason that we're called to this is so that we can inherit a blessing. Now, it's really a hallmark of the Christian faith, right? Well, throughout the, the history of the church, the Christian faith, we especially like to... It's easy for us to lift up heroes from the past who were treated wrongly and returned good in those cases. And we've had opportunities in our own lives, testimonies for, that we hear from people around us who have had the opportunity of doing that. 
And I think it's one of the things that separates the Christian faith from other uh, religions and other belief systems, and that is that we treat our enemies with respect. It's unheard of in other cultures. It's unheard of in other um, religions. It's, uh, it's not something that other belief systems lift up necessarily to treat, to bless someone. And I got to tell you this, it's easy to, for me to stand here and talk about this, much, much harder to actually do it. And what Peter is saying here is that we return evil, railing, with blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Harassments. Irritants on earth today will add blessings to us in heaven later on. Jesus said that on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Completely corresponds with this verse here in chapter 3, verse 9. You will receive a blessing. So how do you submit in a brotherhood? You do it by your general attitude of love and concern for people around us. And you do it by responding in a gentle way to um, um, motives that are not pure. And thirdly, he talks about the motivation in verses 10. A genuine motivation for what we do. Verse 10, Peter says, this is how you do it. And he quotes from Psalm 34. For he that will love life... And see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good, let him seek peace and ensue it. So follow his thinking here. He's saying, one of the first things here is that we, the reason that we do this, the reason that we respond to harassment in gentle ways is because the Bible tells us that. The scripture commands it. And he's pointing to Psalm 34. And just, just a little side note here, just for interesting. First Peter, the books of First and Second Peter quote the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible other than the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. First Peter comes next. And here he's quoting Psalm 34. He who would love life and see good days. Who, who of us want that? Oh, yeah, we all want that. We all want to love life. We all want good days in, as part of our experience. We'd all raise our hand on that. But he says, if, if you want to do that, then you need to treat the good people. You need to love the good people and the bad people. There are some people who hate life. I hope there's no one here like that, but there, I, occasionally you'll, you'll find people that just you know, aren't enjoying life. Solomon was one of those people. And in, um, in his little journal in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I hated life because everything was vanity and vexation of spirit. Other people, you would say, they just endure life. And maybe that's the largest group of us sometimes. We just endure life. We just put up with what's going on around us. We endure it. And then there's other people who try to escape life. 
They try to dodge responsibilities. They try to dodge opportunities. They don't love life. They don't necessarily endure it. They want to escape what, there's, what is theirs to do. But I think God wants us to enjoy life. And I, the way we enjoy life is by realizing that there's a sovereign God. God is watching over us. And I just did a really quick um, scan of the Old Testament where it talks about God seeing God seeing what's going on. It is so fascinating. And I just jotted down uh, quickly, uh, let's see, that would be um, eight passages where it specifically mentions that God saw what was going on. And in addition to that, you can read stories where it specifically mentions creation, for example. In Genesis 1 and 2, it mentions God seeing what was going on. And behold, it was very good. He saw what was done. It says the same thing about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was offering Isaac. And in that context, I think there's five references of God seeing what was going on. The references to sight in that, in that chapter. And then there's Exodus chapter 2, where it mentions specifically that God saw the distress that the children of Israel were in there in the, as in the, the slavery and the, the persecution that they were enduring by the hand of the Egyptians. It mentions the same thing about Hagar. God saw what was going on. He saw the injust, injustice that she was dealing with. And I think it's one of the things that, that should be a motivation for us. And it's not so much that God is watching, out for, is watching us to see if we mess up. He's watching over us would be a better way. He's superintending. He's taking care of us. He cares about the things that we care about. He's protecting us. He's paying attention. He's listening when we pray. That's the picture. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. <clears throat> so there's a real sense where I don't have to deal with the people that are harassing me at any point in my life. God is taking notice of that. I don't need to exact revenge. Paul writes in Romans, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And that's a high motivation. I do it because the Bible says it, but I also do it because God is watching over me. He's taking care of me. He can do it better than I can. <clears throat> and I think... On this point, I think it's especially important for us to think about that that's exactly what Jesus did. And I think it's one of the points that Peter is making here. When we were without Christ, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5 says. That's how he demonstrated his love for us, by dying for us while we were unlovely. He transitions now to talking about our responsibility or how we do, what we do when, when, we're, when what we're doing is criticized, when we're doing for what is right, suffering for doing what is right. And that's the theme there in verses 13 to 17. There's five verses here, and four, four truths that go along with this. I'm going to go through them uh, pretty fast and one by one here. Normally, he says in verse 13, normally when you do good... People appreciate it. I think that's true. I think if you're a kind person, if you're a person that's taking care of your neighbors, normally your neighbors will return that, right? 
That's, that's pretty typical. That's why I think we are peace-loving people as, uh, in our culture. We've learned and discovered that if you're kind to others, generally, normally, kindness is returned. Typically, that's how it is. And that's how he writes in verse 13. Verse 13. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is usually, typically, no one. If you treat others with respect, they're not going to bother you if you live like that. <clears throat> I think it's pretty safe to predict that in this group here today, probably nearly all of us, maybe Maybe all of us will never give our lives for being a Christian. It's very probable that none of us will ever be killed for saying, I love Jesus, or get beat up just for saying that I'm a Christian. Probably not going to happen. But if you're a good person and you follow these things that Peter outlines here, it's a good way to live, and it's a way that we should live. It's probably going to keep us out of jail, at least in the United States here. It's going to bring peace to our, with our neighbors. And we, we tend not to get the hassle that we might get if we're sort of an obnoxious person. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of what's good? The answer is normally goodness. Being good is profitable. And that truly is the Christian worldview. The second thing here in verse 14, though, he turns and he says that eventually, eventually persecution is inevitable. But the contrast, the connecting word there is such a strong conjunction. But the, the King James Version says, but and even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Piggybacks on what he said earlier. And now he quotes out of Isaiah chapter 8. He says, don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So that's the deal. Goodness is good. Righteousness is right. But being good and being right does not make you immune from trouble or criticism. Eventually, you as the, the light of the world are going to be challenged for that very thing. People love darkness. The Bible tells us people like to hide in obscurity. And when you as a Christian shine the light on a person's need, on a person's wrongdoing, on their wrong behavior, it can turn you into an enemy. And the word they is used here in different times. I think it could be people outside of the congregation or in the congregation. Jesus, again, is an example of this. Jesus went about doing good. The Bible tells me so, the song says. He raised dead people. He healed sick people. He did all kinds of good things. But they hated him for that. They killed him because of that. Somewhere down the line, I think we should not be surprised if our doing good results in people asking us about that. Why are you so compassionate? Why are you so sweet and caring? Why do you have such an optimistic view on life? And it gives us the opportunity that to say we do that because of Jesus. 
And that's not a popular message. And I think it's an increasingly unpopular message here in the United States. Jesus said in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. They hated me without a cause, he says. Notice, however, there's a qualifying phrase. He says, but and if you suffer, it doesn't end with that. It says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing the right thing, that's a difference. When we violate the law, when we do something that's um, wrong, when we do something that's straight up mean to someone, we suffer for that. There's sort of a, um, an understanding of justice that we have built, that's built into us. But in this case, he's talking about doing what's right and suffering for it. The, the opposite. And he says, if you do that, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy or blessed, honored are you. <clears throat> The third thing that we see here is in verse 15, where it says that practically reasons are beneficial. And he gives at least two things here that I see um, that are important for us when and if we're suffering for doing the right thing, when we're criticized for doing what's right. Normally, goodness is profitable. Eventually, persecution is inevitable. But here he says explanations or reasons or, yeah, uh, words to defend or give adequate reasons. The word reasons here is the word apologetics, or it's the word that we get from the word apologetics in our English language. And there are people that come alongside us and they want to know why both within the congregation or without the congregation. People, we have an opportunity to, to give reasons of the hope that's in us. And when people ask us, we should be ready to give an answer. And first of all, we should say, it's because of God. Sanctify the Lord God. Set Jesus up as Lord of your life. And I can't think of a better translation than, than um, some of the other translations to this direct passage here, it says, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. The, King, uh, the NIV um, in verse 15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, before you go out and face the world every day, we need to make sure that inwardly we're at a good spot, that Jesus Christ is Lord of our life, that we're loyal to him. And that's, that's what Daniel did. It says that he purposed in his heart to do what was right. And when the challenges came, he instinctively or almost automatically knew what he was going to do. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. It's been correctly said that before you stand publicly, before you can stand publicly, you need to kneel privately. Very true. Before you can stand publicly, you need to kneel privately. And Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar with great boldness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the same thing. And it begins right there. Sanctify the Lord 
in your heart. And then he follows that by saying, always being ready to prepare. And again, that word always is kind of catching to me. And I checked the Greek just to be sure, and it means always. Means perpetually, without ceasing. We need to be ready. And again, the aspect of being ready and willing to give a defense, apologetics. And it's something I think that, especially in our day, I think we need to train ourselves. And there's opportunities for that, and I appreciate that. I think places like um, Faith Builders and Summit Ministries and numerous other um, organizations are out there helping to train youth to know how to speak into situations. It's something that you can do just from the Bible. I think we can train ourselves on, on speaking into these situations. <clears throat> the fourth thing here is that inwardly, he says, conscience is indispensable. Having a good conscience, he says. What is your conscience? I think it's a mechanism. I would describe it as a, as a mechanism that we're implanted with, and we know, instinctively know, whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. There's a conscience that's built in all of us. We stand accused or excused. We stand convicted or affirmed. And when you gave your heart to the Lord, if you remember, those of you who had a clear, um, definite experience, I know that everybody's experiences are different, but many of you... When you gave your heart to the Lord, you remember that feeling of lightness and joy that you felt immediately after that. That's because your conscience was cleared. You know that you are now aware that there's forgiveness. There's affirmation from God. And that's, that's a, talking about a clear conscience. That's a great way to live. Paul lived his life that way. In Acts 23, he said that he had good conscience before God unto this day. And I think Peter's point is clear here, that a conscience, a clear conscience, will help you face a hostile world. People who are not, um, who are detractors, people who want to criticize. And I think we need to guard our conscience in those times. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your lifestyle. In Christ. <clears throat> I want to close now and just give a brief summary, which I think is, happens in verse 17. It's a summary of what has preceded this. In, in verse 17, there's four things as I see it. In summary and as I close here, Peter states the obvious. It's better It's better to suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. We know that, right? We can all agree with that. There's a couple of things that we see here in this verse. The first thing is that if you're experiencing... Let me just say it this way. The things you are experiencing are not outside of God's watch. I take great comfort in that. I take great encouragement in that. And I'm sure that that's true for all of us. It's not something that's happening outside of his will. Notice what he says. It is better if the will of God be so. And God's will is an amazing thing, something that we can never fully understand. 
But what's happening to us and around us is not outside of his watch. It's not outside of his um, ability to care and, and move on our behalf. Secondly, this verse teaches us that he considers us worthy and able with his help to endure suffering. And then the third thing we see, that there is a blessing. We've talked about that a, a, a couple of times here in the, in the passage. It talks about our reward in heaven, and there's blessing that goes along with suffering unfairly. And the fourth thing that I see here as I close, and that is just the understanding that we're walking a well-trodden path. If we're being criticized for, what, for doing what's right, that's the path that Jesus walked. It's the path that we should expect. Many other Christians have done the same thing. And my prayer is that God would increase our strength and that he, at the same time that he would give us integrity so that our lives will reflect this harmony and this humility and this kind-heartedness and loyalty that is talked about here in this passage. And as a result of that, it would signal, it would give a signal to others that salvation and reconciliation with God is indeed possible. My prayer is that we'd be equipped to answer the questions when they come, and we would do that gently and in the fear of God, with reverence and, and godly fear, like it says here. If you're able, I invite you to uh, kneel as we pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask, Father, for your help and grace, your wisdom, your strength to enable us as we go through our lives. I pray that you would guide us and especially give us that spirit of humility that is talked about here in 1 Peter. I pray that that spirit would dominate our lives and that we would be motiv motivated and moved by what the Scripture says and by an understanding of your sovereignty. I pray that you would receive the glory and praise for our lives, and as we go about our responsibilities and duties, that we would do it in a way that draws people to Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.